This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome to Talk of Fame Network, where fall is in the air and hockey is back in season. Ron, you're coaching your son Jack's youth team and opened the season last weekend. How did it go in your debut as a hockey coach? Can we start calling you Scotty Bowman or Toe Blake? Uh, maybe not Big Toe, Sore Toe from kicking the bench a couple times. But, uh, uh, but yeah, my Neshoba Grizzly Peewee team, they uh, rallied from a 4-2 deficit and uh, ended up in a 5-5 tie. We scored with 41 seconds left. Showed a lot of grit, unlike the Jacksonville Jaguars, who showed no grit. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, as you all know, we're a football show with a Hall of Fame theme. Each week we spend our two hours visiting with you, talking about football greatness. So, Ron, let's start the show talking about a few of those greats. Great who last weekend lost their way a little bit. And I'm talking about kickers Adam Vinatieri and Justin Tucker, guys who never miss, missed. Vinatieri missed two extra points in Indy's victory over Buffalo, and Tucker missed the, extra, the first extra point of his career. In fact, the first kick he has ever missed inside of 33 yards, and it cost the Ravens dearly in a one-point loss to the Saints. Now let's start with Vinatieri. He's soon to be the NFL's all-time leading scorer. There's never been a kicker better in the clutch or more automatic than Adam. He missed only 15 conversion kicks in his first 21 seasons. You cover the guy on a daily basis in New England for years. How do you explain him missing two chip shots in the same afternoon? Well, uh, first off, as it turns out, it appears that he's got a right groin injury, and he's probably going to be out of this week's game against uh, Oakland. So I think that was probably had a lot to do it uh, with it, of course. And the other thing is that he'll be 46 on December 28th. He's, he's not the same quick kicker that he was, uh, you know, back in the day. Uh, a little bit of that snap is gone. But if we got to win, make one kick to win the Super Bowl, Goose, I still want him kicking. Okay, Tucker's converted an NFL record 90% of his career field goals and 222 consecutive extra points to start his career. But his 223rd attempt last Sunday was a doozy. The Ravens scored the potential tying touchdown in the final minutes and needed Tucker's extra point to put the game in overtime. He was wide right. How does that happen? Well, the same way my four iron deserts me. You know, Goose, sometimes I hit it, it looks it's perfect, and the next thing I, I hit it and goes, where in the hell is that going? Okay, we got another great show for you today. We'll visit with Hall of Fame cornerback Dick LeBeau and discuss San Francisco's best players not in Canton with Bay Area Beat reporter Matt Mayoko. We'll also talk about the Cowboys trade for Amari Cooper, the collapse of the defending Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles, and the Jacksonville Jaguars. So stay tuned. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Goose, it seems like every week lately we've seen the passing of another great football player whose life deserves to be mentioned. This week, it's Dick Mojuleski, who passed away at 87 years old. Dick Mojuleski won the Eldon Trophy in 1952, was college football's best lineman while at the University of Maryland. Then he was drafted in the second round by the Washington Redskins. He played two seasons there. But like many guys, got into a beef with head coach Joe Gaharic and signed with the CFL's Calgary Stampeders to escape. Uh, but the deal was rescinded, and he was ultimately shipped off to join his brother Ed, who was a fullback with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, but unlike at Maryland, where they had played together, they never saw the field at the same time because Ed was quickly shipped to the, to the Browns. And a year later... 
Dick, known to some as Little Mo because he was younger and, uh, and smaller in high school, but bigger after that than his big brother, was traded twice in three days. First to the Lions, and then fortunately for him, to the Giants. That's where he found his place. He became a starting defensive tackle for eight years on a team that would reach the NFL championship game six times. He'd go on to play three more years in Cleveland, where he'd start in two more NFL title games and win one, uh, before becoming a longtime coach and briefly a scout during what would become a 63-year career in the NFL, 14 as a player. Goose, any memories of Big Mo and Little Mo? Yes, sir. That, that front four of those giant teams, late 50s, early 60s, Andy Robustelli, Rosie Greer, Jim Katkavich, and Little Mo. That was the best defensive line in the NFL back then. That was the steel curtain before the steel curtain. That put so much pressure on quarterbacks. The Giants intercepted 33 passes in 1961. We know, I saw one quote from him that I really loved uh, in one of his obituaries. He said he loved his brother, but then he said, but on the field, he wears a white shirt and I wear a blue shirt, and we don't even know each other. Little Mo, Dick Mojaleski, gone too soon at 87 years of age. Well, Goose, it was an interesting week around the NFL. One of the teams that seems to have righted its ship, while others flounder, is the Houston Texans. Uh, they appeared on their way to getting Coach Bill O'Brien fired early in the season, but now they've won four straight, and they're atop the AFC South. What do you make of the Texans? Well, their two best players were coming off season-ending injuries in 2017, and I think quarterback Deshaun Watson and defensive end J.J. Watt were shaking their rust off during that 0-3 start. They are now back playing like the Pro Bowlers that they are, and the Texans are again a team to beat in the South. You know, we'll, we'll talk about Watson some in the next segment, but what a difference a franchise quarterback has made in Houston. Bill O'Brien was taking the team to the playoffs without a quarterback in the past. There's a new level of expectation now with Watson taking the snaps. Yeah, I think Billy's actually done a great job down there. Uh, I'm a, you know, he's a friend of mine, so I'm a little biased toward him, but, uh, you know, that, that I can't remember a guy who's had the kind of injuries that he's had year after year wreck his team, so. Yeah. Yeah. He'll get what he deserves this year. Uh, another fascinating team is the Saints. Uh, they lost their season opener despite scoring 40 points. Then they nearly lost the next game to the Cleveland Browns. Uh, and at that point, it appeared that the hangover from that devastating last-second loss to the Vikings in the playoffs last year might never wear off. But, lo and behold, now they've won four straight. They're sitting at 5-1, and one, and Drew Brees looks like the Cajun version of Tom Brady, going to play forever and eat gumbo. Where are these Saints likely to march to? Well, probably a first-round bye. You know, forget all the records Drew Brees has been setting with his arm this season. He's played six games and hasn't turned the football over yet. No interceptions, no fumbles, nothing. He's the only quarterback in the league playing perfect football. And you couple that with the speed of Michael Thomas and the plank, the reliability of the NFL's best halfback combo and Mark Ingram and Alvin Kamara, and that offense can take the Saints a long, long way this season. Is, is their defense good enough to hold up uh, with that offense, or doesn't the defense even matter anymore? Well, look at the Kansas City Chiefs. You're looking in the mirror. Yeah. yeah it's, it's all about offense. It's all about offense. Imagine if those two play in the, in the Super Bowl, Goose. My God, it'd be, IBM will have to keep score. It'd be crazy. Bet the over. <laughs> Bet the over. Yeah, there you go. And now let's get to a team with whom you have some uh, familiarity. Uh, your Dallas Cowboys, as, as Clark Judge loves to say. Uh, they lost to the Redskins last night to slip to 3-4, and four, but the division remains in flux, and they just acquired... Uh, uh, Monty Cooper from the Raiders to give Dak Prescott a deep threat, number one type receiver. Will Cooper be the resurrection of the Cowboys? Well, I think Jerry Jones is banking on it. 
because he wants to see this team back in the playoffs after a year's absence. You know, Jason Garrett is certainly banking on it because his job likely is on the line if the Cowboys don't make the playoffs. You know, Amari Cooper is definitely a step up from the receivers Dak Prescott has been throwing to. You know, with the departures of Des Bryant and Jason Witten in the offseason, I thought the Cowboys took the worst set of receivers in the NFL into the season, and they played like it. Cowboys ranked 29th in the NFL in passing with this receiver-by-committee approach. He arrived with Cooper, if nothing else, supplies the committee with the chairman of the board. Don't they have to go back to that running game, though, though, though Goose? I mean, when, when it was going pretty well uh, for Prescott, I mean, the runner was doing a lot of heavy lifting. I mean, don't they have to get back on, on pace with that? And isn't this a little of a scary possibility if now they decide we're going to just keep chucking the ball down the field? No, Cooper, Cooper will allow them to do that. The problem is they didn't have a deep threat, so they were playing nine men in the box. Uh, last week, the Redskins absolutely stuffed uh, Elliott because they had no respect for the wide receivers. They, had, they didn't care if Prescott threw it every time. They just didn't want Deck, uh, uh, Zeke Elliott to beat him. So adding the speed of Cooper, who can stretch defenses, he'll make everybody take a step back. And that should create a little more daylight for uh, for Elliott. I, I think I think uh, the arrival of Cooper is probably going to help Elliott as much or more than it's going to help Prescott. Interesting, interesting. What do you make of that NFC East? I mean, obviously the Giants are out of it, uh, but uh, I can't decide if all those teams are no good uh, and they're just going to bump around into each other, or if they're all pretty good and they're going to bump around into each other until somebody finally wins. What's going to happen in the in the NFC East before it's over? Well, I think the Eagles still have the most talent. I mean, that team won the Super Bowl last year, and, and they've added a lot of good pieces to that group. But the Redskins are interesting. Uh, they made an investment the last two years in defensive line and Alabama linemen. They took uh, Jonathan Allen and De'Ron Payne with first-round draft picks, and they absolutely owned the Cowboys' offensive line last, last week, which many people consider the best in football. They have a quarterback that doesn't beat himself, Alex Smith. They've got a pounder, a fullback, in uh, Adrian Peterson. They can win the way the Cowboys did in 2016, run the ball, play defense. Well, Goose, you've just stated the case for the Cowboys in the NFC East, and now it's time to state uh, the case with no judge around, as in our clock judge who's taken a few days off to take care of some business. Uh, so the case to be made has been left to me, and here it is. Some men's impact on the games they play are obvious. Their numbers tell their story. George Tyler Farrell was not that sort of man. But that doesn't mean there isn't a place for him at the Pro Football Hall of Fame because it is a place for legends and pioneers. And in many ways, George Tyler Farrell was both. In 1949, he became the first African-American drafted by the NFL when the Chicago Bears took him on the 13th round. He had already been an All-American at Indiana and the star tailback on the only undefeated team in school history. At the same time, he was facing spirit-crushing racism on campus. He was not allowed to swim in the pool, not allowed to live in the dorms, not allowed to eat in the school's cafeterias. If you went to the movies, there were many rows he was not allowed to sit in, all the ones up front. He would later say, I couldn't do anything on campus but go to class and play football. I felt like a fifth-class citizen. At one point, not long after arriving in Bloomington, a disillusioned Talaferro called his dad, who worked in a Gary Indian steel mill, and told him he was coming home to join him. His father did not hesitate. He said, then you should cross your arms and cross your chest and lie down and die, because I never had the kind of opportunity that you're going to have. Robert Talaferro told his son in the way only men who understood the truth of those dark words could say it. And then he hung up the phone. George Talaferro stayed, became a star, and in 1949 learned the Chicago Bears had drafted him. But although the Bears had made him a trailblazer, he had a problem. 
he couldn't play for him because he'd already signed with the All-American Conference, and he went and played for the L.A. Dons for a year. Then they merged with the NFL, and he came back uh, into the NFL and played six more seasons while playing seven different positions, quarterback, running back, wide receiver, kick return, a punt return, a punter, I'm tired, and defensive back. He once said, when I came off the field, the game was over. <laughs> Imagine so. He also went to the Pro Bowl three times uh, during those six years. And the thing he said about football was, the thing I liked most about football was hitting people. It allowed me to vent my frustrations with being discriminated against in the United States. I'm not saying that the Hall of Fame is discriminated against George Tolofaro, but they certainly have forgotten a guy who was extremely important in the development of the league and in the presence of African-American players who dominate today. I think they should take one look at him. Well, Ghost, it's time for us to close the door on this segment. But you and I will be back in a minute with a frank debate over where this year's rookie quarterback class stands in NFL history. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to Talk of Fame Network. Well, it's been all the rage this season to talk about the young guns strafing NFL defenses with their passing arms. There's no question this has been an interesting start of the careers of rookie quarterbacks Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, and even Lamar Jackson, who was getting into the act occasionally down in Baltimore. Some say this may be the greatest rookie class of instant hits at quarterback ever. How do you see these guys, Goose? Ron, I certainly don't see this as the greatest rookie class ever. The the 83 draft is still the gold standard with three Hall of Famers, John Elway, Dan Marino, and Jim Kelly. Plus another quarterback who took his team to the Super Bowl, Tony Eason, and another quarterback who went to the Pro Bowl, Ken O'Brien. I'm not sure I see three Hall of Famers in the current draft class, but I'll take a, a bigger picture approach. If you plug Jared Goff and Carson Wentz from 2016 and Mitch Trubisky, Patrick Mahomes, and Deshaun Watson in 2017, I'm not sure I've ever seen that many quality young quarterbacks enter the league together like this. And some of these players have already displayed huge upsides, most notably Goff, Wentz, and Mahomes. Okay, which one has shown you the most thus far? Uh, not in terms of, of what you think their upside is going to be, uh, you know, when they were drafted or something like that, but right now looking at them after a year of play, uh, or in some cases half a year of play, uh, when you look at all those guys and you, you've got to draft one tomorrow, which one are you taking? I'm taking Mahomes based on what he's done. This, this, this is, he's playing the Harlem Globetrotters football. I mean, it's fast break football, and that ball's in the air. He's got Andy Reid surrounding him with speed. I think Andy Reid was smart in that he, he made Mahomes sit last year and watch and learn. And in the meantime, he was just putting more and more speed in that offense, you know, getting, getting a Sammy Watkins this year. He built an offense that could feature this huge arm that Mahomes has. So at this point, I really like what I've seen from him. You mentioned the 83 draft, of course, that, that class of, that everyone talks about, Dan Marino, John Elway, Jim Kelly, Tony Eason, Ken O'Brien, and Todd Blacklitch, uh, all taken on the first round. Uh, three of them, as you point out, went to the Hall of Fame, so it's hard to argue uh, with them. But collectively, there's a, quite an oddity there. They were 2-9 and nine in Super Bowls. Uh, and Bill Parcells always used to tell us, Goose Ben, as you'll remember, with that wagging finger, quarterbacks are judged by their jewelry. Not many rings among those guys. Uh so how does that class stack up to, to this young guns group of, of quarterbacks we're, we're talking about? Not many rings, but a whole lot more busts. You know, <laughs> I, I, I think there's a better chance we'll see three Hall of Famers from the class of 2017 
in the class of 2018. But that said, Elway, Marino, Kelly, that's the gold standard. Namath and Marino are the best pure passers I've ever seen. And there have been many quarterbacks who have won, but few that I've seen that had the will to win of an Elway. It, it still amazes me. He took the Broncos to the three Super Bowls in the 1980s with a whole bunch of spare parts in the roster. It's, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because that's, in my opinion, the great, that's the greatest of Elway, not the, the two Super Bowls at the end. Agreed. Those teams he took to those early Super Bowls did not deserve to be in that game or belong in that game. He made them go to that game, and then he couldn't take them any further. But I, I always thought that it was incredible. What, I mean, I was at that, that, that Cleveland game and the drive. You, know, was, you knew he was going to take them down and score. You know, you just <laughs> – you know, but then – you also knew he wasn't going to win those Super Bowls when he got there. It's it's incredible. If you look back on those teams and really look at who they had, who the hell did they have other than John Elway? You know, I mean, the three amigos, please. That was it. That was it. And, and you know, when you get to the final game, the talent's going to win. Right. And they, and they just didn't have the talent. It was all Elway. Right, exactly. Uh, one thing that did strike me about all this clamor of, of late, and I understand we live in a clamorous uh, time uh, uh, about all these rookies, but it seems to me uh, people have forgotten the not-too-distant past. Again, I'm going to say a lot about our society today. 2012, Goose. It's only been six years since Russell Wilson, Robert Griffin III, and Andrew Luck were all highly successful rookie starters at quarterback and appeared to be the long-term futures of their teams. All three of them uh, took their teams, the Redskins, Colts, and Seahawks, to the playoffs. Luck threw for over 4,000 yards. Griffin passed for 3,200 and ran for another 815. And Wilson threw for over 3,000 yards and 26 touchdowns that year. Seems to me none of this year's class is quite on that pace, at least not at the moment. No, but I think the reason everyone gets excited is that four of the five first-round quarterbacks in the class 2018 are already on the field as starters. You, you mentioned the, the, the three of uh, those guys there. There were four right now starting. You know, one of these quarterbacks is likely going to be the NFL offensive record of the year, as Griffin was. One of these quarterbacks will fall into a really good situation like Russell Wilson did. And remember, that class of 2012 also produced Nick Foles and Kirk Cousins. Right. Even with Griffin washing out as a starter, Cousins certainly picked up the slack for that draft class, both in stats and in contract value. And how many draft classes have produced a Super Bowl MVP quarterback like Foles? It's just hard to view the class of 2018 from any kind of lens of accomplishment with so small a sample size. Is there a cautionary note there with that 2012 uh, uh, class of quarterbacks, though? You talk about Griffin, injured career basically ended. Locke injured, and, and Lord only knows, he looked pretty good last week, but you know he missed a ton of time with that shoulder. And then, of course, you have Russell Wilson, who's still going strong. So you you look at these guys today, and you can throw Mahomes in, in, in the list, and in, uh, uh, Wentz and, and Goff, uh, but it can end like that, as it did for Griffin, and, and may or may not have for, for Andrew Locke. Uh, yeah, at a, at a time when, let's face it, they're pretty well protected. So I don't, I'm not sure exactly what that says, but if you're creating a team, you think you never can feel totally secure at quarterback, can you? Well, by and large, when, when these quarterbacks are going high, they're, they're generally going to bad teams. You know, Wilson was a third, third and he went to a, a team that was that was set to win, and and did win with him. But most, you know, luck and, and Griffin aside, these guys get drafted. Why they get beaten up? You know, like Tim College, his career was ruined by the fact the Browns had to play him. They weren't ready for him to play. That's my concern with Josh Allen. I mean, the Bills can't protect him. They don't right. have weapons. They can't block. 
you know, I, I'm concerned about the, the psyche of Josh Allen after after his rookie year with the beating. He's, he's, he's already hurt. I mean, that's it's generally the cast you put around the player that determines whether he's going to pass or fail. You know, even with these liberalized rules, a lot of people are, are saying that's part of the reason these young quarterbacks can come in and play well so quickly because uh, they've held a lot of pass defense. Uh, Having said that, how much do you think Mahomes benefited from sitting most of last year behind, really all last year he started one game, behind Alex Smith? And in the end, might that greatly benefit Mason Rudolph, who's sitting in Pittsburgh right now watching Ben Roethlisberger? Yeah, without question. I'm, I'm a big fan of sitting rookie quarterbacks. Drew Brees sat. Aaron Rodgers sat. Philip Rivers sat. Carson Palmer sat. If you can afford it, let him watch and learn for a year and figure out the speed of the game. Put them on the field when the game is ready for them and they are ready for the game. Now, patience is a virtue that virtue that too few teams with franchise quarterbacks can exercise. But those that do benefit is a Chiefs are saying this fall. Were you uh, uh, surprised at all that, that uh, so many of these guys got, got rushed in you know, Hugh Jackson talked about whether or not Mayfield was going to be the start, and boom, there he was. And I can remember when Drew uh, Bledsoe came in the league, and uh, Belichick, uh, I mean Belichick, Parcells kept telling me all preseason how he wasn't going to be the starter. And finally, about a week before the season started, I said, what do you mean he's not going to be the starter? Everybody else you have sucks. This, guy, this guy's a hell of a yeah. lot better. And you looked up, and, and he was the starting quarterback and, and uh, you know, seemed to, to do okay. But um, are you surprised that so many of these guys have been rushed forward, or was there no choice? Yeah, I think I think Cleveland wanted to sit Mayfield as long as possible. If, you know, John Dorsey, the GM of the Browns, came from the Chiefs where they sat in the homes, and he knew the benefits of sitting a young quarterback and letting letting him learn the game before putting him on the field. I think that was the goal with Mayfield, but they, they just couldn't do it. They they weren't competitive. And you saw when he got on the field and that, and that game came off the bench, the building was electric. And that's the problem. When you take a quarterback in the first round, the fans want you to play him. You're paying him the big money. They want to see that the kid on the field. So you got the, the, the pressure of the fans that, you know, we want this guy. You know, we want Baker. We want Baker. So it, it's tough. you got to be very patient and, and, and very secure in your position to make the guy sit for a year. You know, to flip the script here for just a second, obviously we've got an aging quarterback in Eli Manning uh, who looks like he's on his last legs. There's a lot of uh, – How's the eye floating around New York now that uh, they should have drafted one of these guys uh, this year? Now they're probably definitely going to have to do something uh, next year. Was that a mistake? Uh, did they uh, overestimate what Eli Manning had left? What do you think happened there? I think they took the best player in the draft. You can never knock a team for taking the best player in the draft. You know, they'll be better with Barkley. And we just talk, touched base on this. The Giants can't block, and, and that's the issue. You, you look at Barkley. He's had a tough time running for yards. There are no holes. And Manning takes a beating every Sunday. If you had drafted a rookie quarterback and put him behind this line, you may have lost the guy for good. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't have a problem with them taking Barkley. You know, they're, they're in a position now where they can build this team and, and, and put the offense in a better situation to handle a rookie quarterback. He's a second-round draft pick on a guard. He'll be better next year. Solar should be better next year than now that he's had a year in Shermer's system. The offensive line should be better for whatever quarterback they put out there. But if I think if they had drafted a quarterback, if they'd taken Sam Darnold, he might have been killed by now in that, in that offense. <laughs> that would be not good. We wouldn't like that. No. Uh, no. Uh, one last guy. 
Derek Carr a couple years ago. You look like Derek Carr was going to be the guy. You know, we didn't even mention his name. Uh, what do you think is happening to him? I usually play on a bad team. That's part of the problem. But uh, we got about a minute left. What, what do you see his future? Well, I don't know that he has a future. Uh, John Gruden is, comes in. It looks like John Gruden's getting rid of every player that Reggie McKenzie ever drafted, ever brought in. He, he doesn't seem to like anybody that Reggie had. You know, they, that wasn't a bad team when they had Del Rio there. Get rid of Del Rio, and all of a sudden these players all stink. And, and John Gruden, I mean, to, to trade away Mac, trade away Cooper, I mean, those are those are building blocks of what could be a championship team. I, I don't think uh, I don't think Carr is, is Gruden's guy. And I think uh, his, his future's in jeopardy with the Raiders. And until he finds somebody better, uh, I think Derek Carr is just holding up for life in that offense. Wow. Well, you know what, Gooseman? You're our guy, that's for sure. And you, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll sit down and chat with Hall of Famer Dick LeBeau, who for the first time in 59 years does not find himself on the firing lines with an NFL team. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Our first guest was one of the greatest cornerbacks in NFL history and also one of the game's best defensive minds. Nick LeBeau intercepted 62 passes for the Detroit Lions, third in NFL history among pure corners, and also coordinated two Super Bowl championship defenses with the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was the inventor of the zone blitz and coordinated five defenses that finished number one in the NFL. Nick was enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2010 for his playing career, and if he didn't already have his bust as a player, he'd be a candidate for one as a coach. But this is the first October in 59 years Dick has not been on the field either as an NFL player or as a coach, which is why we invited him to join us today. For the first time in almost six decades, Dick finally has some time in the fall for his friends. Dick LeBeau, welcome to the show. Well, I'm very happy to be here. It's an honor to be talking to my very good friend and longtime acquaintance, Mr. Rick Gosselin. Good to hear hear from you, pal. Six decades is a long time. Do you miss it? Well, I, I thought I thought once they started playing uh, that I would miss the game some. But up until that first kickoff to start the season, I didn't miss it at all. Didn't miss any of the training camp, none of the OTAs, none of the uh, combine scouting meetings, none of that. But I, I do miss the games a little bit. Uh, I miss being around the players more than anything. But... Uh, I've had my time in the barrel, as they say, and I'm enjoying not having to go to work today. <laughs> is it fun having a life? Yeah, it is having a life, no doubt. I'm glad I didn't know about it till now. <laughs> <laughs> Dick, you spent 14 years as a player in the NFL and then 45 more years uh, as a coach. Can you compare game day experiences between that of a player uh, and that of a coach, how they differ? Well, uh, they're, they're totally different. Uh, I think the, uh, the anxiety, the anticipation, uh, all those things are the same. You know, uh, getting ready to compete, that part of it for me was the same as a, as a player. Uh, I was always a little more... 
comfortable as a player because you know you're going out on the field and you know you're going to be dealing with uh, the football game snap by snap. Uh, when you're a coach uh, and when you get to the level of coordinator and you're calling the defense, you're just calling the defense and hoping. <laughs> it feels a little better when you've got your hands on the wheel. But uh, <laughs> uh they, they're, really, it wasn't too much different. I think, really, all of us old players that become longtime coaches, it's because we've never gotten uh, that hunger to compete and to, on a weekly basis, go out there. You know, it isn't like putting together a sales plan and having to wait a year to see how it turned out. You're going to get the uh, results in seven days on your game plan for that week, and that's that's a pretty uh, exciting way to live, really. Uh, and uh, there's nothing quite like the competition uh, of two great NFL teams fighting it out uh, in the championship game or the playoff games. Uh, that's something that I think anybody that has experienced uh, they would miss it some. Okay, speaking of championships, Dick, you won a national championship as a player at Ohio State in 1957 and your first Super Bowl as a coach of the field almost 50 years later. Can you compare those two experiences? Well, uh, one, one of my strengths uh, over the years has been my memory. and I remember things. I would remember situations in games, stuff that maybe uh, the offensive coordinator did, uh, you know, 10 years ago when I was playing against him, uh, back when I was a player, or something that Johnny Unitas tried, you know, 16 games ago when we played him twice a year, Bart Starr. Those things have helped me throughout my competitive career. But uh, I can remember very vividly our uh, locker room in uh, Columbus, Ohio, uh, when we uh, since the uh, the Big Ten championship, and uh, uh, it was uh, it was a once in a lifetime experience, and we we were throwing stuff on each other. I mean, you'd think we were junior high school kids or something, but uh, I don't think anything will will top that simply because we were young. But uh, the the World Championship uh, to win the Super Bowl, uh, if if your life's uh, employment, really, uh, your vocation is uh, football or sports, and you're in the championship game and you win it. Uh, we we had I'd gotten there twice with Cincinnati, and uh, another time with uh, Pittsburgh, and had lost all three of those games. And uh, we were playing uh, the number one offense uh, in the league, the Seattle Seahawks in Detroit, and. Uh, they had the ball. We had a 10-point lead, and uh, they were inside the 20, maybe the 18, 17-yard line, and they had longer yards, so I knew they were going to throw. And uh, if we kept them out of the end zone there, it was pretty much a done deal. And I'm watching the, uh, that clock, and uh, they throw, and uh, Ike Taylor reaches up and backs the ball down, and I'm getting ready. I'm calling, and everybody starts uh, saying, we did it, we did it. I said, we ain't done nothing. I said, there's another there's another down to go. I said, no, Coach, that was fourth down. I said, no, there's another down to go. <laughs> they said, no, it was fourth down. <laughs> so I looked at the scoreboard, and it said, uh, I think the score was 20 to 10, and uh, – uh-huh. I sat down on the bench and watched those last seconds tick off of that clock. And, uh, you know, there's nothing like the field when when the, the winning team, you know, when that uh, 
clock expires and the confetti starts coming down, people start going crazy. And I just sat on the bench by myself because I, I, you know, had a long playing career and had a long coaching career, and it began to look like I was never going to get the experience of a Super Bowl championship. And I, I kept thinking, well, I got to be dreaming, you know. <laughs> this, this is, I'm going to wake up, and we still got to beat the Ravens or something to qualify for the Super Bowl. But I kept saying, by God, we did do it. It was over. <laughs> so I would say that's number one. And then that locker room at Ohio State when we won the, the Big Ten, going to the Rose Bowl and becoming national champions, those would be one and two for me, for memories. <laughs> Now, you mentioned Johnny, and I guess, of course, you played against him. Uh, and then 50 years later, you find yourself drawing up game plans to try and stop uh, another great Colt, Peyton Manning. Uh, which of those guys was the greater challenge? <laughs> oh, they were both tremendous because they had great uh, cast of characters around them. Uh, I've always thought that Peyton, uh, uh, for my money, uh, was uh, almost unstoppable because he was so good at the line of scrimmage. And, you know, Brady's become that now himself. Uh, those guys, uh, they you can't fool them. And uh, once they know what you're doing, you can't really defend them. And they always know what you're doing. Uh, but we, we had some success, but by and large, if you're out there often enough against the quarterback of that caliber, uh, they're going to get some points. They're going to get some yardage. Uh, it's, a, it's a different time. It's a different game, but I'd have to say Peyton. I'd have to take Peyton, although Johnny uh, was a tremendous uh, accurate passer. Both of those guys, the more the team needed to drive, the more likely they were to move them down there and get what they needed to get. Uh, another quarterback who had that characteristic it was unbelievable was Bobby Lane whenever he needed uh, a fourth quarter drive it seemed like he always got it and those are the great the great quarterbacks they just have been men almost always delivers in that situation he did uh, you know two Sundays ago yeah okay Dick you covered Hall of Fame wide receivers Raymond Berry and Bob Hayes and decades later you drew up game plans for Hall of Fame receivers Jerry Rice and Randy Moss which was the greater challenge there uh, Paul Warfield. <laughs> Warfield was the only guy that I didn't have a clue on. Uh, he was a glider. Um, Bob Hayes had won the gold medal in the Olympics. So he was the fastest man on the planet. But when he ran, actually, the, uh, you know, they don't have it now because it's artificial turf, but playing on dirt, the clouds of dirt just flew up behind him like a rooster tail on the hydroplane racer. So all he had to do was watch for the dirt and get the hell out of there, man. <laughs> so Hayes was not as hard to defend because you had to give him some room. You weren't going to run with him, but he'd let you know when he was going. And Paul was a glider. And if you took your eyes off him for a second, he was five yards away from where he was the last time you saw him. Uh, Raymond Berry, he, he never missed anything, and he had Unitas' accuracy going for him to get the ball to him. But, uh, you know, Charlie Taylor was a great receiver. Bobby Mitchell was a great receiver. Uh, you, you you hate to start naming them because the one thing, like I say in my memory, I've seen all these guys. That's why they put me on the the committee to pick the best players in, in, the, in the history of the game, because I've seen every one of them back at Broncos and Hurstgate, man. You also played against a lot of them, of course, including the Packers of Vince Lombardi's era, and then you coached against Bill Walsh's 49ers and Bill Belichick's 
Patriots. Um, in your opinion, how would those Lombardi Packers stack up against the, the 49ers and the Patriots of, uh, of those later years? Well, again, it's a different era. It's a different game. But, but those guys, that group of players, uh, it's been my experience that championship teams uh, have more than athletic building. Uh, they have the ability uh, to uh, seize the situation in the moment and to uh, analyze what has to be done. Uh, they they got great athletic intelligence. They they know the field. They know uh, how much time is left. They know uh, when they got to go, and they deliver. And I think that that, that Green Bay team, it, all those guys were remarkable in character, and I think that they would be champions no matter what era they're in. And I think you can say the same for the great team today. I know uh, our great uh, Steeler team, our great Steeler defenses, they, they were like one person out there. They weren't 11 guys. They were like one guy out there. And they, they could, uh, I don't know, Troy would do his stuff, and, and the other 10 guys would know right away what the hell he was doing, and I didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> but they, <laughs> but they they had a unique uh, ability to communicate, sometimes only with a look. Uh, Ryan Clark was a safety with, with Troy uh, quite a few of those years, and I swear they did it with the look of the eye or, or some kind of flash. I mean, they, you, there was no audible communication, but Troy took off, and Ryan would always be in the right place to, to back him up. And uh, together, they made a hell of a lot of plays for us. But uh, those guys, that old seven defense of the Steelers, uh, I think they'll be the last really low, low, statistically low defense. So the game uh, so different. You know, uh, Seattle, when they won their, their title, they had a great, wonderful defense. They were tremendous. But uh, that Steeler bunch was significantly lower statistically. Than Seattle, I don't think there's going to be those kind of numbers put up again. Uh, the way the games played today. Yeah, that's sad too. Um, but too, and I, I love watching your defense, and I love watching great defense. But, but Dick, we, we appreciate you stopping by and visiting us, and uh, keep enjoying those Sunday afternoons on the golf course. I'm going to do that, pal. And you and I could only go probably about uh, three months. The story. So if you want to talk again, give me a holiday. <laughs> I appreciate it, Dick. Thanks, Dick. Have a good day. Thank you. See you, Rick. That was Dick LeBeau. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, there's the whistle, and that's the sound for our two-minute drill. That's the two-minute warning. Usually we have Clark Judge back here somewhere, either tooting a whistle or returning a kick. But he's off. Parts unknown. So the goose man is on the firing line. Here we go. How does Tyrod Taylor look to the Buffalo Bills now? Is Warren Moon too strong comparison? How about Randall Cunningham? <laughs> Can anyone block Darius Leonard? I would take my chances with John Hanna or Anthony Munoz if you could resurrect their primes. <laughs> you are right about that. Uh, is there a better name for a running back than Carry On Johnson? How about Wizard White? <laughs> Wow. We are going. Got about that one, didn't you? That's a way back machine. <laughs> How short's the lease on Blake Bortles this weekend? It extends across the Atlantic. <laughs> 
After losing to the Colts 37-5, Bills coach Sean McDermott said he'd got to, he'd had to go back and look at the tape to see what. Well, like the rest of us, he's probably trying to figure out how Adam Vinatieri missed those two extra points. <laughs> Now the Patriots are in first place. Is the AFC East race over? Ron, you know, it's been over since 2001 when Tom Brady took the field for the first time. <laughs> Was Eric Reed seeking social justice when he attacked Malcolm Jenkins before the Panthers-Eagles game had even begun last weekend? He thinks Reed was voicing his displeasure over the six paychecks he didn't cash this fall. Six paychecks that Jenkins didn't miss. <laughs> Is Vikings wide receiver Adam Thielen the greatest undrafted free agent in history? Oh, Ron. Dick Night Train Lane wasn't bad. Emlyn Pennell, Warren Moon, Kurt Warner, John Randall, Willie Wood, your guy Willie Brown. When Thielen has a bust and can't like those guys, get back to me. <laughs> Speaking of him, will Thielen break Calvin Jones' record of eight straight 100-yard receiving games? Well, he's playing the NFL's 28th-ranked pass event at home this weekend. I certainly like his chances of tying it. The Rams are 7-0 for the first time since their 1985 team started 7-0 and finished 4-5. Is this a replay or a remake? The 1985 team had Dieter Brock at quarterback. The 2018, Jared Goff. What do you think? The Browns have gone to overtime four times this season. Are the Browns paying them overtime in Cleveland? The Browns still owe the fans extra quarters as payback for all the incredibly bad quarters they've played since 1999. That's the end of that. <laughs> and that's the end of our two-minute drill. We'll be back after this break. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the second hour of the Talk of Fame Network. Ron, we had Dick LeBeau on in the first hour. Even though he owns a bust for his play as a quarterback with the Lions, his football career has been overshadowed by his brilliance as a coach. But let's talk about his playing career for a second. You can make the argument that LeBeau played in the greatest secondary in NFL history, and I will. Three of the starters have been enshrined in the Hall of Fame. LeBeau, Night Train Lane, and Yale Larry. And when Lane retired, he was replaced by another Hall of Fame corner, Lem Barney. Lane and LeBeau both rank in the top three among pure corners and interceptions, and Barney ranks ninth. So I've got the Lions the early 60s as the greatest defensive backfield in NFL history. Ron, who do you have, or should I ask, which Raiders secondary do you have? <laughs> exactly right. Uh, look, it's hard to beat the tandem of Mike Haynes and Lester Hayes on the corners. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, that was the greatest, most athletic set of corners in NFL history. Uh, how Mike Haynes, of course, is in the Hall of Fame, and it continues to baffle me why Lester Hayes is not. Uh, but sadly, overall, I can't really argue that that secondary was better than, than the Lions ones uh, that you mentioned because uh, they certainly didn't have three Hall of Famers. But I will... I will uh, postulate this. What about the 69 Chiefs, Goose? Cornerback Emmett Thomas and safety Johnny Robinson, both elected to the Hall of Fame. Jim Marcellus was Rookie of the Year that year, that season. And Jim Kearney was a very solid safety. I'd take my chances with that crew, even against your Lion team. 
I counted up two busts in that group. I think the Lions had three. Well, what I also liked about that Lions secondary is the versatility. Not only was Larry a Pro Bowl safety, he was a Pro Bowl punter. Not only was Barney a Pro Bowl corner, he was an elite punt returner with two career touchdowns. And you know who holds the record for the longest pass reception in the history of the Cardinals? The Night Train. Night train. 98 yards back in 2055. And LeBeau was a Hollywood stunt double for Michael Caine in a movie. Can the Raiders top that run? Uh, well, they probably can't, although uh, Mike Gaines is a uh, tremendous kick returner, as you know. Every bit as good as Deion Sanders when he was doing it. Uh, Lester could play linebacker in a pinch if he had to and did. Uh, and their safeties, Van McElroy and, and Mike Davis, maybe they weren't the greatest safeties in the world, but one could negotiate a contract and the other one could negotiate a union contract. So we had, we had a lot of versatility, too. <laughs> Well, we're going to take a break, but stay tuned. We'll discuss the Cowboys, Eagles, Jaguars, and Hall of Fame-worthy 49ers in the next segment. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network. The NFL has not had a repeat champion since the Patriots since 2003-2004. Many have tried and 13 have failed. No matter how stout they look on paper as they head out to defend their championship, it's been tough. The Philadelphia Eagles, on paper, were the better team than the one that walked off the field with the Lombardi Trophy last February. The Pro Bowl quarterback Carson Wentz is back. Their Pro Bowl left tackle Jason Peters is back. Their Pro Bowl kick returner Darren Sproles is back. So is middle linebacker Jordan Hicks. None played in that Super Bowl because of injuries. The Eagles also uh, would have a full season on a Pro Bowl running back Jay Ajayi, who was acquired a midseason year ago. But they also traded for Pro Bowl edge rusher and Michael Bennett and drafted the best pass-catching tight end in college football in Dallas Goddard. If any team looked equipped to defend a title, it was Philadelphia. But the Eagles have already lost more games this season than they did all of 2017. They sit 3-4 and four and have already lost twice at home. They lost just once last season. Ron, you covered the Super Bowl, and you saw the Patriots lose to those Eagles. What happened to Philadelphia? Why aren't the Eagles flying this season? Well, I think there's an assortment of reasons, uh, including, uh, you know, Wentz having to get settled back in and Nick Foles struggling early. I think when he was trying to prove that he uh, might actually be the quarterback he was that day in the Super Bowl, even though he is not. Um, but I think the hardest thing for defending champions uh, is just to retain that understanding of just how hard it is to win. You know, with most games decided by seven points or fewer, uh, just aren't that much better than the competition. The problem is you now wear a ring that's the size of Rhode Island with screams that you are better than the competition. So I think when it comes down to the closing moments of a tight game, you expect to win. But are all 22 of you pushing to accomplish that at the same time? And secondly, the converse is also true. You get up early, uh, uh, as the Eagles have twice this season, and you think, well, they're going to roll over because we got rings as big as Rhode Island. Well, then they don't roll over and they catch you at the wire like happened with the Panthers this past weekend. And you look up, and you've lost another game. Ron, since 2004, the Patriots had two chances to go back-to-back and fail both times in 2015 and 2017. If the Patriots can't do it, can anybody do it? <laughs> Probably. I, I'm telling you, it's pretty tough. Now, in the case of the uh, of the Patriots, you know, parity has a lot to do with this, uh, as you know, Goose. You know, Bill Belichick's Patriots have won five Super Bowls by a combined margin, combined, of 19 points. It means they've won by 3.8 points 
uh, per victory. They've also lost three times by 15 points, a margin of five points a game. So they could be 8-0 in the Super Bowl or 0-8 <laughs> you know, if the outcomes were just changed by an average of four and a half points. That's an ultra-thin margin uh, for error and an ultra-thin margin to be considered a dynasty. Ron, let's look uh, at another of this season's disappointments, the Jacksonville Jaguars. They reached the AFC title game last season and were sitting at a 10-point fourth-quarter lead at New England before Tom Brady, as usual, rallied the pass to victory. Like the Eagles, this is not the same team in Jacksonville that we saw a year ago. They also sit 3-4 and four with a current three-game losing streak. So what happened to the Jaguars, the mighty Jaguars? Well, you know, I have, I'm actually falling in love with the Jaguars because they remind me of the Oakland A's back in the day in the 70s, in the 70s when I was out in Oakland. They get yelling at each other, punch each other in the face in the locker room. It's great. Uh, but, you know, their problem, I think, is a little different than, than the Eagles because they have an Achilles heel, and it's at the game's most important position. Yeah. yeah. You know, despite his postseason success last year, Blake Bortles is simply not good enough to maintain a consistent championship team. And last Sunday, he coughed up the ball in the third play in the first half and the third play of the second half. The defenses should have been punching him in the face instead of each other. You know? <laughs> so there's rampant finger pointing, you know, the quarterback supposedly on a short leash. Uh, and I think Tom Coughlin probably rues the day that he decided, eh, maybe Blake Bortles is better than we think. He's not. Yeah. The Jaguars could very easily have been matched against the Eagles in the Super Bowl last February. As luck would have it, the two teams played this weekend in, of all places, London. Someone has to win and somebody has to lose. One team will leave England with a realistic hope of salvaging their season. The other team will face a steep climb back to respectability. So how does this game play out? Well, uh... I think the Jags are in uh, more desperate straits, and that usually makes me lean in that direction. Uh, but in this case, one team has a star quarterback uh, and a very confident and competent backup. The other team has Blake Bortles and Cody Kessler. Not good. When, when Kessler replaced Bortles in the second half last week, what did he do? He fumbled and threw a pick. I like the Eagles. <laughs> okay, three of the last six Super Bowl champions missed the playoffs the following season. So, Ron, are either the Eagles or Jaguars a playoff team at year's end? Uh, I think the Eagles are. I mean, Jacksonville possibly could be, uh, you know, if their defense can get it uh, together, although their offense is going to keep killing them. But Super Bowl, yeah. I don't see that for either one of them. I just the Eagles are just so puzzling to me. I mean, that is, on yeah. paper, that is a more talented team than last year. No question about it. But it just, you know, it, it's it's just so hard. Everybody is coming at you so hard every week, yeah. and and I don't care who you are. Uh, you know, they all take a deep breath and say, "Hey, remember me? You know, I'm a I'm a champion." But yeah. you know, that trophy doesn't mean anything anymore, except to everybody who's coming to beat you. So, Ron, it's that time of the show where my alter ego, Dr. Dana, takes right. the floor. And Let me today, in the lab coat. Here you go. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. A little fun these days. Today I'm going to talk about the Cowboys trade for wide receiver Amari Cooper this week in an attempt to salvage their season. The price is going down for the Cowboys, but Jason Garrett, the head coach whose job is in the balance, hopes the return is going up. For the third time, Michael Irvin's career ended with a Hall of Famer, Michael Kerr. Urban's career ended with an injury in 1999. The Cowboys have traded for what they consider an elite receiver. 
In 2000, the Cowboys sent two first-round draft picks to the Seattle Seahawks for Joey Galloway. In 2008, they sent a first and a third-round draft pick to Detroit Lions for Roy Williams. And this week, the Cowboys traded away their first-round draft pick in 2019 to the Oakland Raiders for Mr. Cooper. After the Cowboys cut Des Bryant last offseason, they hope to have receiver by committee in 2018 with hopes of returning to the playoffs after a one-year absence. That experiment has been a miserable failure. The Cowboys ranked 29th in the NFL in passing, going to the likes of Cole Beasley, Alan Hearns, and rookie Michael Gallup, and now find themselves sitting 3-4 and four at their bye. That's when the panic set in, and the Cowboys dealt with the Raiders during their bye week in an attempt to save their season. The good news is that Cooper is only 24 years old. Williams was 27 when the Cowboys acquired him, and Galloway 29. Cooper's had two 100-yard receiving games this season for the Raiders, which is one more than the Cowboys collectively have managed through the first seven <laughs> games this season. Galloway spent four seasons in Dallas but never had a 1,000-yard season and scored only 12 touchdowns. The Cowboys went to the playoffs once with Galloway and were one and done. Williams spent three seasons in Dallas but never had another 1,000-yard season and scored only 13 touchdowns. The Cowboys also went to the playoffs once with Williams and again one and done. The Cowboys need Cooper to play like Michael Irvin, not Galloway or Williams. If he comes up short, the Cowboys will be without a first-round draft pick this offseason and will be looking for a new head coach. Well, Cooper had back-to-back 1,000-yard receiving seasons uh, when he first came into the league, and now he seems to have, uh, if not fallen off the cliff, he's, he's, he's certainly tumbling down the <laughs> down the road. Uh, but as you point out, he's only 24. Uh do you think a lot of his uh, drop-off has been because he's been playing for a sinking ship and that that will change in, in Dallas, or, or is he somehow shot at a young age? Well, again, I think because John Gruden inherited him, John Gruden didn't like him, so that's part of it. And I, I see him as an impact receiver who can still make plays uh, in Dallas, but he also will have some frustration with the inaccuracies of Prescott. And the Cowboys will have some frustration with his drops. He does drop a lot of balls. You know, if, if this was Jerry Rice, Gruden wouldn't have traded him. But if Cooper can mix in a few long touchdowns, the Cowboys will get what they paid for. But I'm just not sure that uh, this saves their season. As, as dire a need as wide receiver is, well, it's tough giving up a first-round draft pick for one. For sure. So Ron, let's take a break and give our sponsors a chance to do what they do best, showcase their products. Coming up, we'll talk about assistant coaches and if they have a chance at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Ron, both you and I have been advocates for coaches being transferred out of the Hall of Fame's general population into the contributors pool. The universal belief is if a Hall of Fame vote comes down to a player or a coach, the player will almost always get the benefit of the nod. Sliding the coaches into the contributor category gives worthy candidates like Don Coriel, Tom Flores, and Marty Schottenheimer a legitimate shot at a bust. Those are all head coaches. Ron, we visited with one of the NFL's all-time great assistant coaches, Dick LeBow, earlier in the show. Do assistant coaches belong in this discussion as well? 
I think they do. You know, some of the most innovative minds in pro football history were primarily assistant coaches. You know, guys like Clark Shaughnessy, who invented the T formation, uh, and then uh, left the Bears, uh, rehired, uh, brought back by George House to come up with a defense to stop the T formation. Pretty good. Certainly Bud Carson would be another guy that you could think of as a very innovative guy, uh, LeBeau uh, as well, though he's already got a bus, can't have two busts, I don't think. Uh, uh, but, you know, the problem to me is how do you pick amongst all the great uh, assistant coaches that there have been over the years? Well, let me throw this at you. Jim Hannafin was a great offensive line coach. So was Joe Bugle. Norv Turner was a great offensive coordinator and play caller. Wade Phillips was a great defensive coordinator, as was Richie Pettibone. And Frank Gans was one of the best special teams coaches of all time. Even Dick LeBeau. But all were failed head coaches. Should a split resume like that deny them that Hall of Fame discussion? You succeeded as an assistant, but failed as a head coach. I don't think so because they're they're really two separate and distinct jobs. You know, not everyone can be a general, and not every general can be a squad leader or a colonel in the field. You know, it's one thing to plan the D-Day invasion from London, smoking a cigar like in a, a Ike. It's quite another to be leading the charge up San Juan Hill like Teddy Roosevelt. You know, head coaches are administrators, they're delegators, and as George Bush once put it, the decider. But they aren't often the guys in the trenches turning wrestlers into NFL offensive linemen like Dante Skarnecchia has done for so long in the uh, uh, NFL. So I don't think so. I think if you're judging them as an assistant coach, that's really what you look at. That's an entirely separate job. So on the bus, it would say assistant coach, not just coach? Yeah. Why not? Defensive coordinator, whatever, special teams guru. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, let's build the Hall of Fame wing for assistant coaches. If you could give a free pass to Canton to any assistant coach, who would your first trainee be? Clark Shaughnessy. Uh, I mean, in his case, he was also a successful head coach, actually, for several seasons with the, with the Rams out in Los Angeles. Uh, the problem was he was so difficult to get along with that the owner, Dan Reeves, said, I'd rather lose with somebody else than win with this guy. Uh, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Uh, but most people consider him among the most innovative uh, coaching minds in football history. As I mentioned, he created the T formation, which really was for so long the foundation of all NFL offenses. And then he created the defenses uh, to stop the T formation. Uh, and I think that really puts him above the rest in my mind. <laughs> Clark, uh, Ron, I, just, I shake my head at Shaughnessy. What, why isn't he already in the Hall of Fame? Well, my guess is, and I don't know this, I, I don't know this for sure, but I did know the man a little bit. My guess is George Hallis didn't help his chances. <laughs> you know, Hallis, I'm sure, had a lot of power, a lot of voters back in the, in the day when Shaughnessy's name would have come up. Uh, and although he was happy to use him, uh, uh, to, to help the Bears, he didn't really want to give him any credit. The credit all was supposed to go to George House. So my guess is he probably didn't help his chances. And then you just sort of fade away. And as I've been told by a lot of people who knew him, he wasn't the most pleasant guy to deal with. So uh, it was easy to uh, just sort of walk away from him, I think. Well, he would define contributor in the contributor category. For sure. Well, no question. Yeah. No question about it. Around, I'd give my free pass to Howard Mudd, one of the game's great offensive line coaches. He also was a body of work candidate like LeBeau in that he was one of the three guards named to the 1960s NFL All-Decade team. You know, he was an offensive line coach for seven franchises, but had his greatest success with the Colts when his troops were in trust with protecting Peyton Manning. Mud built a formidable blocking front with two undrafted college free agents, plus a fourth-round pick and a fifth-round pick. You know, he's always accomplished more with less. 
in his eight years as an offensive line coach than, than just about anybody. You know, that makes him Hall of Fame worthy in my mind. Got another one, Ron? Yeah, and, and I would tend to agree with you with Bud. You, know, you, you could probably make a pretty good case for him as a, as a player, frankly. It, it never happened because yeah. of his position. But uh, same position, coach, uh, same type of success. Uh, for me, the guy I'm going to mention next, which is Dante Scarnecchia, who's coached in New England mm-hmm. as an assistant for 44 of the past 46 years. Can that be right? I guess it is. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Yeah, no, 34. Yeah. 34 the past 36 years. Still pretty uh, remarkable. Uh, he's worked successfully for both Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick, which is saying something. He's been a line coach. Imagine that. Yeah, good God, that's enough to make you jump off a bridge. Uh, you know, he's been an offensive line coach the past 19 years, and he's coached on all eight uh, 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 Patriots Super Bowl teams under uh, Bill oh. Belichick, his line has kept 41-year-old Tom Brady safe for 17 of his 18 seasons, and he's done it with very few number one picks. In fact, uh, he's probably done, uh, like Howard Budd, done more with less uh, than you could think is imaginable. Take one critical position, center. He had one number one pick, Damian Woody. Otherwise, his Super Bowl centers were two undrafted free agents, a fourth-round pick, and a fifth-round pick. He also had on either side of those uh, latter two guys, an ex-wrestler and a former fireman as the starting guards. They won Super Bowls. Hall of Famer to me. Ron, has he ever interviewed for a head coaching job? He never has. You know, he was the interim head coach uh, when Dick McPherson got sick, and he came in the first day and said, <laughs> said I want to tell you guys right now, I have no interest in this job. <laughs> you know, he's, he's a guy who, who just understood it wasn't something he wanted to do. And I asked him one time about it, and he said, well, if you want to coach football, you don't want to be the head coach because they don't get to coach football. Uh, there's too many other things they have to do, and he had no interest in, in the bulk of those things. Well, let me give you yet another name of an assistant coach who always has done more with less, Bobby Turner. In his 23 years as an NFL running backs coach, he's produced 16 1,000-yard seasons by nine different backs, and not a single one was a first-rounder. His offense have produced 12 top-five rushing attacks and four pro bowlers. His most prominent pupil, Hall of Famer Terrell Davis, is one of only seven backs to post a 2,000-yard rushing season. The other six were first-round picks. Davis was a fifth-rounder. That's coaching, Ron. So who is the best assistant coach you've ever been around? Well, believe it or not, this is actually pretty easy, even though I've seen a million assistant coaches, as you have. And that's... Uh... Bill Belichick. I was around him when he worked for Parcells uh, in New England. I was around him when he worked for Parcells with the Jets. And I was around him in a lesser sense, but around quite a bit uh, when he was coaching with the Giants. That guy could coach football. And I always remember Parcells telling me this story one time. And, and, and uh, Belichick got really mad about it. Uh, he said, he's the perfect assistant coach. And I said, why is that? He said, because if I tell him to go stand over by the Coke machine, I'll be right back, and I forget and drive home for the weekend. When I come back on Monday, he's going to be standing right there by the Coke machine. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good story. All right. The the last staff I covered in Kansas City in 1989 included Tony Dungy, Bill Cower, Herman Edwards, uh, Bruce Arians, and Howard Mudd, all great assistant coaches. But I was only around that staff for one year. I, I was around Frank Gans for several seasons as a special team coach um, of the Chiefs in the 1980s. 
and he was probably the best assistant I've seen. He's the godfather of special teams coaches and made the kicking game a weapon with his blocks and returns. And you remember back in the early 80s, not every team had a special teams coach. Right. But there were about a dozen of them. And I remember when uh, Gans had that great game where they, they, they scored 24 points on special teams to clinch a playoff spot in the finale at Pittsburgh. The Steelers didn't have a special teams coach. That game convinced Chuck Knoll, i got to get me a kicking game coach. Well, you know, it's but what makes well, I was just going to say, it's interesting you mentioned that, Goose, because you're right. Back when we started out, you'd be the special team coach, but they felt the need to give you something else, like you were the tight ends yeah. coach. Or you were the, I, I guess the implication was, well, it's just not that hard a job, which, of course, we all know it is. Uh, but in those days, uh, I always say, why is this guy doing two jobs? Everybody else is doing one job. Well, special teams, you know, what are they doing? They run down, they get smashed into each other, and we, we get the ball on the 25-yard line. That was the, that was the mindset in those days. Big mistake. Yeah, nowadays, you got the special teams coach, you got the assistant special teams coach, and you got the special teams quality control coach. <laughs> I know. It's, I mean, yeah, it's a little overkill the other way now, actually, probably. Right, Bill, check aside. What makes for a great assistant coach? Well, I think, you know, you're, you're, you're technical command of the position you're teaching. I mean, it's a teaching job. Uh, the techniques are so important in a game that's as fast as pro football is. Uh, if your hand is in the wrong place, if your foot is in the wrong place, uh, you know, you're dead. Uh, I don't care how good an athlete you are. And so you have to be have tremendous attention to detail. Uh, you have to understand how to motivate uh, a group within a larger group, uh, while at the same time making clear to them that they are part of the whole and not greater than the whole. Uh, and I think, you know, in a lot of cases, you have to be the kind of guy that can understand not only when a guy needs a kick in the butt, but also when he needs to have your arm around him. Uh, these guys are still human beings, which some coaches tend to forget. It's not a screaming match. Uh, and the more you scream, probably the less you're teaching. And I think that that's the biggest thing to me. How good a teacher are you? If you're a good enough teacher, then you can be a great assistant coach. Uh, but if you can't teach, you can't coach. And I, I agree 100%. Cause I remember when Jimmy Johnson got to Dallas, he uh, he brought his, his, his staff in from Miami, most of those guys, because they were great teachers. You have to be a teacher at the college level. And Jimmy believed that, you know, I've got to teach them here and now more than ever where there's so little contact. You better make sure that, that these players have their techniques correct, that at least right. they have the form to play the position. And that's, you know, teaching is, a, is a, an element I think is, is undersold in the NFL today. Yeah, no, I agree with them. I and mean, the, the best assistant coaches I've been around uh, would have been great social studies teachers or math teachers or something else if they were. You know, you have to inspire a guy. You have to uh, uh, lift him up when he's down. You have to jump on him when he thinks that he knows what he's doing when he doesn't. Uh, and, and you have to work harder than your players are working. And some of these players work pretty hard. So uh, it's a tough, tough job. Well, next up, we'll visit with Bay Area reporter Matt Mayoko about the best 49ers not in the Hall of Fame. And there are plenty. You're listening to Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Matt Nioko is a proud supporter of the Humboldt State Lumberjacks, but eventually he would graduate from rooting for the Jacks to covering the 49ers, something he's done for well over a decade now in the Bay Area. The past eight years, uh, he's done it for NBC Sports Bay Area after first learning the tricks of the beat man's trade and a number of 
the Bay Area newspapers, including one of which I was an alumnus, the Oakland Tribune. So I'll always think of him as a Tribune guy. Uh, Matt's also the creator of Instant 49ers blog, the author of free books on the 49ers, and he presently serves as the Hall of Fame voter from San Francisco in honor. They gave him the distinct difficulty of three times having to make the case for Terrell Owens. Baptism of Fire. Uh, I believe that that was his the first guy he had to uh, uh, introduce. Uh, how hard was that for you, Matt? Well, yeah, it was it was hard because you're talking about a guy that had the Hall of Fame numbers, but there were other issues that had to be addressed, and so you know it wasn't just a conversation about the guy as a player. It had to go beyond the field because I, I don't know that anybody really questioned his credentials as far as what he did on the field, but it, it got very difficult when uh, you, you start factoring in and trying to figure out how much to factor in the off-the-field stuff. Well, this did's going to be a lot easier for you, I can assure you, uh, of that, uh, now that you've got T.O. in the hall. Uh, so who do you believe is the most deserving 49er player who's not yet been enshrined? It's a tough call. Um, you know, you look at the, the the recent history of the 49ers, and the two names that come to mind are Roger Craig, who was a, a finalist one year but never really got any traction, and then a guy that I would like to see get into the room, which is Bryant Young, a guy who is you know kind of the anti-TO in a lot of ways, where. You know, he was a good performer, but he was probably even a more solid individual. But the one guy that Bill Walsh always talked about, who he thought should be in the Hall of Fame, is Billy Wilson. And he was you know, a, a very good wide receiver or end in those days on a team that had the million-dollar backfield. Uh, but Wilson led the league in, in receiving several times. Uh, one thing that Bill Walsh always said was that Wilson was a guy that when the when the Pro Bowl was an actual competitive game where both teams are trying their hardest to win it, he was the MVP of that game. So I know he's not going to, you know, he's, he's in the hands of the seniors committee, but I'd like to see Billy Wilson, uh, who passed away, uh, he's almost two decades ago now, I'd like to see him get his, you know, his turn uh, to be in Canton. No matter part of me, as, as great as the 49ers were in the, in the 80s and 90s, they, they seemed to have a, 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 just a light attendance in Canton. You look at the 70s Raiders with 11 players in, the 60s Packers with uh, with 11 players in. Why do you think that is? Why would such a great team that had so much winning be so light in their Hall of Fame representation? You know, my thought is probably the star power was just so big. He had no Walsh. Uh, I think a lot of people kind of think of him as the guy that made it all possible and a guy that took, you know, players who maybe weren't Hall of Fame caliber and turned them into, you know, championship teams. Um, that would be my guess. And then, you know, you have Joe Montana, you have Jerry Rice, you have Ronnie Lott. I mean, those three guys are considered you know, three of the best players, not only at their positions, but three of the best players, period, in the history of the NFL. So I think in a lot of ways, those guys kind of overshadowed everybody else. And so that's why, you know, a guy like Roger Craig, who was so instrumental, and he was a guy that really enabled Bill Walsh to open up his playbook and use the, the running back out of the backfield. Uh, you know, Roger Craig is the first 1,000,000 guy in NFL history 
and there's only been one other guy that to do it since him. So, you know, the thing that kind of hurts Roger Craig, who off those teams I think would be the next guy, is that his rushing numbers, you know, aren't huge. His receiving numbers aren't huge, but it's that combination. And I think you know, a lot of people look at that and, and don't see the eye-popping numbers that, you know, from a skill position player, you, you want to see to be able to, to vote him into the Hall of Fame. Right. You know, you brought up a name in, in, in Bryant Young, who was a, a 1990s All-Decade player. He went to four Pro Bowls. Uh, you know, obviously, playing a bit of a tough spot at defensive tackle to get a, a massive statistics that people would notice. Uh, but what about him, uh, in your mind, makes him a Hall of Famer? Because his name does come up with people who really kind of know the defensive line position. I honestly think he was a better player than Warren Sapp. You know, his sack numbers are comparable. But I think he was better against the run. He, the thing that he did, uh, he was just a tremendous leader, a good locker room guy, uh, everything. I mean, he's, you know, the 49ers give the, the Lynn Eshmont Award to the player who you know, shows courage and leadership. And he won that thing like six times. Uh, and that's an honor that Ronnie Lott never even won in his career. That's voted on by the, the players. The thing with Brian Young was he was so quiet. He was such a, just a team guy. He never spoke up. He never drew attention to himself. He didn't have a sack dance. He didn't say flashy things in the media. And so a lot of times, I think, with him, he kind of faded away, and people really didn't recognize how great he was. You know, you mentioned as a defensive tackle, you know, he's not getting, you know, 12 or 15 sacks every year. He had some very good seasons, uh, but he was just a stalwart on you know, some, some pretty good teams. Toward the end of his career, the, the 49ers started to fade a little bit, but just a just solid professional and you know a guy that 31 teams in the league would want to have on their team as a, as a focal point of the defense. So I definitely think he's worthy, and I, you know, I'm disappointed that he's never even made you know, the top 25, I don't believe, uh, and I think he is certainly worthy of, of getting in that room as a, as a final 15 person and hearing the case for Brian Young. I, I think he's worthy. Matt, I'm with you on Billy Wilson. Here's a guy that uh, played 10 years, went to six Pro Bowls, led the NFL receptions three times. He plays in the million-dollar backfield of the 49ers with four Hall of Famers, Joe Perry, Hugh McElhinney, John Henry Johnson, Wyatt Hill. He's the only skill guy not in. How difficult would it be to bring his case to the table with all the inflated numbers that we're looking at now in the modern era for wide receivers? Well, yeah, I mean, I... I don't, I, that's, the, that's the job of the seniors committee to be able to, to wade through the numbers and, and look at it and, and you have the context of history. I mean, let's face it, now with quarterbacks and with wide receivers, when, when you look at you know, the numbers of a decade ago, you know, it's tough enough to compare those numbers with those players now because of the, the rules changes. But when you go back, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, now it just becomes almost impossible. You cannot compare guys in different eras, you know, the, the number-wise. You have to look at the numbers of the era where the players were, were playing in. So, you know, with Billy Wilson, you know, it, it's not going to be eye-popping numbers based on what people know uh, and are used to today, but you got to look at it from how how dominant a player was in his era, how uh, you know how productive he was, the the uh, you know the, all the challenges that he faced uh, during that time, and that's why Billy Wilson, I think, is a a strong candidate 
and, and probably overlooked uh, to be in the Hall of Fame. Now, one guy who, who never gets uh, mentioned, and, you know, we hear this from time to time about Tom Flores, you know, won two Super Bowls and so forth, uh, and, and doesn't really get much of a shake. Uh, but here you had uh, another coach, George Seifert, who took the 49ers to two Super Bowl championships, was 98-30 and 30 with the Niners and 114-62 overall in 11 years as a head coach. Uh, he was 10-5 and five in the playoffs. Uh, do you think it's if they if he had not had those three terrible years in Carolina when he came back uh, to coach and probably shouldn't have? Do you think they really cooked his Hall of Fame chances? Because otherwise, he's got six division titles, seven playoff teams, and two Super Bowl wins. Yeah, I think you're right. Now his bank account is probably happy that he went and, and coached for the <laughs> Carolina Panthers. And, and George has lived a very good life. He's fishing and hunting and still active. Uh, but yeah, I think for his Hall of Fame credentials, uh, that that pretty much ended it because then it became, well, he just inherited Bill Walsh's team and won a couple of Super Bowls with Bill Walsh's team. So I think what would have made George's case so much stronger had he not had those seasons with the Panthers was that he was also a tremendous defensive coach. You know, they won three Super Bowls uh, with him on the defensive staff and a couple of Super Bowls with him as a defensive coordinator. So he was a guy that was every bit the innovator on defense that Bill Walsh was on offense. And, and to, to finish that off with a couple of Super Bowl championships, yeah, I think would have made George uh, a very strong candidate for the, for the Hall of Fame. But uh, you know, had he gotten out or had he not returned to coaching, you know, his winning percentage probably would be number one in NFL history. So uh, he, he, was, he, he definitely would have had an argument and probably would have gotten in the room a couple of times at, at least had he not uh, fallen on his face with the Panthers. Was that an un- unfair rap on him that he, that he won with Walsh's teams? Because there was quite a span between those two Super Bowl uh, victories. I mean, he had a lot to do with building that second team, did he not? Yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, the culture was in place. Uh, the the you know, Bill Walsh kind of helped uh, make that transition from Joe Montana to Steve Young because, you know, Steve Young was learning from Bill Walsh and learning from Joe Montana during that time that, that uh, you know, Walsh was still around. So, I mean, there was a lot of carryover. You know, one of the things that Bill Walsh's wife, I'm sorry, what uh, George Seifert's wife told him when he took the job, she said, don't screw it up, George. And so George didn't screw it up. He just kept, you know, kept a lot of the same pieces in place. You know, the offense remained the same. And then, of course, you know, he, he had that defense dialed in the way he wanted it. Now, statistically, his numbers are eye-popping. But when you watch Frank Gore, did you see a Hall of Fame running back? Boy, I do. Yeah, I, I do. And I, I know the argument in, in five or six years, whenever uh, he comes up, will be that he was never the dominant running back of his time. Uh, but I, he just, he has stood the test of time. And, I mean, his the rushing numbers are, you know, they're phenomenal. And for a guy coming into the league, he was seen as an injury concern. Uh, you know, he had a learning disability, so people didn't think he'd be able to pick up an NFL offense. I've, I've never seen a smarter football player and a guy who loved the sport as much as he did. And so, you know, there will be the argument of, well, you know, over a – over one season or two seasons, he was never the best running back in the league. But I can tell you one thing, 
when his career is over, there's only going to be about three guys who have ever had more yards rushing than him in NFL history. So I think he's in. Uh, uh, he's going to be a fun guy to talk about because he's one of my favorite guys to cover. Just the passion and his zeal for the game. Um, I, I just think I mean, he's been one of the, the guys that I've really enjoyed covering through the years. Well, Matt, we're kind of uh, out of time here, but uh, we appreciate your your uh, talking about all these guys, and I hope that we get Billy Wilson in for you, and then we'll help you get Frank Gore in. How about that? Fair trade? That is a very fair trade. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. That was Matt uh, Mayoko talking about the great uh, non-Hall of Famers who probably deserve a, a shot at Ken. We'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, there's that final two-minute whistle, Goose. That's the two-minute warning. One more drive to the finish line. After Jaguars uh, had a post-game screaming match following last Sunday's loss to the Texans, Jalen Ramsey said, ain't no secret what's going on. So tell me, Goose, what's going on? Well, the league's second-ranked Davis has been asked to play almost 33 minutes during this three-game losing streak. An offense that can't collect first downs or points is drawing a lot of fire these days. <laughs> Rams running back Todd Gurley, 14 touchdowns, ties him with Priest Holmes for the most through seven games. Does he have a prayer of breaking LaDainian Thompson's all-time record of 28? And with five more games in L.A. and three of his four remaining road games indoors, I'd say he has a very good shot at the record. Ooh, that'd be something. Uh, Deshaun Watson took an 800-mile bus ride from Houston to Jacksonville because of fears that air pressure on a plane might affect his injured ribs. What would they have done if the game was in London? Don't they have Uber in Houston? Dial up Aqua Uber. <laughs> Aqua Uber, I like it. Drew Brees became the fourth quarterback to throw 500 touchdown passes. Do such records even matter anymore? Only in fantasy football. Quarterbacks are no longer playing football. They're playing pitch and catch. This next one's uh, my favorite, Goose Man. Sean Payton went for it four times on the Saints uh, on fourth down on the Saints opening drive last Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) What would Paul Brown say about that? Build a defense you can trust, son, and then punt the ball away. The game is not all about offense. Patriots owner Bob Kraft says Thursday night football is moving towards digital. Where do you think it should move, Goose? Well, the NFL is going to continue giving us games like Arizona and Denver. Thursday night football is sprinting toward the dumpster. <laughs> Jaguars owner Shad John has dropped his pursuit to buy Wembley Stadium in London, but says it's the revenue from those games that keeps the team in Jacksonville. How soon before the moving van show up? I think they're going to need a boat, not a moving van, to travel across that pond. <laughs> Head of officials Al Riveron says the league will look at overlaw- an outlawing tackling by the hair in the offseason. Why not simply say all hair must be inside your hat? I fully expect the rule change, and I fully expect every skill player in the NFL to sprout rage for the 2019 season. One last one, Gooseman. Rangers general manager Reggie McKenzie has run seven drafts since he arrived in Oakland. He has selected over 50 players, and only two of them are starting. Was he drafting with darts? That said, McKenzie's proving to be a better drafter for these Raiders than Gruder is coaching them. That's the end of the game. Well, that's it for this week's show. We'd like to thank Dick LeBeau, Matt Mayoke, the Gooseman, 
all our listeners. Shea behind the glass, doing his usual yeoman job. We'll be back next week. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.